have this last panel come up. So if you're on the education panel, won't you join me here on this stage? Um, I'm excited for this panel. You see, we're sitting inside of a school. And you may not know much about this high school, but it, it's in a neighborhood that's been gentrified, and it's probably one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Chicago. But yet, this school is very um, diverse across African-American and Hispanic lines, but this is a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, 30 over, I think it's at least 30 homeless students that come to this school. So I, when we talk about education, um, there's a lot of things wrapped up in that, that with this matters of race and education. So um, would you guys just take a second and just kind of introduce yourself? Who are you? Um, what do you do uh, in terms of work uh, in, in education? What's your history with education? So, with Jerry. Oh. <laughs> um, so, um, my name is Jared James. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, here in the city, on the south side of the city, um, with my family. They're actually back here, so I got to give them a shout out. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. but yeah, so I grew up here in the city on the south side of Chicago. Um, went to. I'm a product of Chicago public schools. So, um, been in CPS from first grade all the way through high school. Um, and I, we'll get into it a little bit later, but um, I was fortunate enough to um, stay in selective enrollment um, from first grade through eighth grade all the way through um, high school uh, and with my parents, um, especially my mom just being an educator, working for CPS, kind of knowing how to navigate that route a little bit, which is weird that you have to know how to navigate it. But mm. um, so yeah, grew up here. College went to Ball State University as well. Chirp, chirp. Did uh, <laughs> did did are you baby? My we'll keep going. <laughs> did my grad school um, got my MBA from Ball State as well, and just finished up my CPA for certified yeah. public accountant. And I work uh, downtown for a public accounting firm. Let's go. Thanks. Hey, I'm Liz Carroll. I grew up in Indiana in a very small town, so I didn't really experience race and education at all um, until I went to grad school in New York City. And um, then I worked for Chicago Public Schools, and I was in three different schools as a speech pathologist. So uh, one of the schools was a select enrollment school, like Jarrett um, had mentioned, and it was the most diverse, and then one school had primarily African-American students, and the other school had primarily uh, Latino students. Hi, everyone. My name is Nina Oalabi. I am currently a college advisor, um, but I'm from Maryland originally, grew up in Maryland, went through public schools um, in Maryland, went to Go Terps, since we're repping our schools up here, <laughs> University of Maryland, <laughs> College Park. Um, and then would move on to get my graduate degree in New York City at Teachers College, um, Columbia University. We actually went to the same school, it's fun. And, um, and just over the last 10 years have been in many different facets of education. So I've worked in summer programs where we were working on building literacy um, through culturally relevant reading um, for youth in Washington, DC, but then also working with the Dignity in Schools campaign around like school discipline reform in New York City, um, but then also, and as well as college success in uh, New York City as well, and now coming here doing a lot of college access and college success work as well. So I've been an education advocate and an advocate for youth and families for the last 10 years or so. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Marsha Lane. 
I am a first-generation college student and graduate from Southern Illinois University. I'm also a Chicago native to the South Side. Uh, I originally uh, started my education at SIUC, also Carbondale, which is kind of Poduck, Illinois, for some of you who are unfamiliar. Um, I started there with my journalism degree, and the focus really was to be a whistleblower to or for marginalized communities. And I found that over time, my junior year, around that time, I realized that I couldn't really uh, be an active agent of change by only objectively writing about the issues, I wanted to actually be a part of the change for those issues, yeah? So uh, my trajectory changed, and I started to realize my interest in working for marginalized groups over the past, I don't know, 10 or so years. And so my work has been geared towards um, supporting inner city youth um, through Chicago Park Districts or working for high affluent um, families whose children were on the autism spectrum or working um, in low income communities like Cahokia, Illinois, uh, East St. Louis, or even the St. Louis County and actually um, promoting higher education as a uh, avenue for students, that it is attainable, it is accessible. And so for the last five years specifically, I've worked in higher education um, to be a gatekeeper of information to high school affiliates, counselors, community-based organizations, and really try to educate them on how to navigate um, what we have as higher ed. So that's me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as you can see, you've got a wealth of knowledge and resources up here with the different folks and whether you're working in it or you're a product of CPS. I want to start with Nina and Liz and just talk about, if you would, just share, you know, working in, uh, whether it be CPS or higher education here in the city. What are some things, how do you encounter matters of race? I mean, is it, was it new to you? What, what did this look like to you? Uh, how does it make you feel, too, when you're, you're working with these students or whether it's them coming into school, wherever they come from, how, how does that make you feel? Sure. Um, so I've worked in kind of three major locales, Washington, D.C., New York City, and Chicago, and sadly it's the same. I mean, you know, you're going to have different elements, right, but for the most part you see a lot of the same issues, and the big piece that I've noticed, and also why welcome is so important to me, is um, the idea of race and racism really being insidi insidious, being hidden. Um, mm -hmm. It comes through a lot of times in how teachers, how administrators, how different systems are kind of working together to make a student feel like they don't necessarily belong in a space. And so that's something that I saw, um, particularly working with the Dignity in Schools campaign. You know, we had students um, tell all kinds of stories, but in particular, um, black males, young um, women of color as well being targeted for suspensions, being targeted for um, arrest in schools. You're talking even children as young as five years old being arrested because they disrupted a classroom. Mm. Um, there's a, there, and it's usually a student of color. Not usually, it's always um, a, a student of color, it seems like. And so that's what you see on one end of the spectrum within like public schools and whatnot. Um, but on the higher ed side, um, I've recently returned to school. I'm at North Park University um, working toward a graduate certificate. So I'm learning a lot about the different systems of, and the system of higher ed in the U.S. And one thing I was reminded of is that the higher education system was not built for me. Mm. It was not built for anyone who looks like me or was not a white privileged male. And when I say privileged, I mean owned land or their mm. family owned land, right? 
Um, and so you had an almost 400-year-old system that has functioned from that capacity. And really only within the last 50 or 60 so years is when you've seen things like the GI Bill, which opened up opportunities for veterans you know, to, to come to school, or you've seen the Higher Education Act, which kind of followed the Civil Rights Act and really opened up the gateway for um, students of color to be able to enter into higher education. So 400-year-old system, only more recently we've seen an influx of students of color and students of color um, particularly who are low income. Um, yeah, there's an issue of, mm. of welcome there. And so a lot of what I do in my work as a college advisor is all about you belong here. You are supposed to be here. I want you to be here. Nothing says that you cannot be here, even though our financial aid system um, in many ways has actually um, kind of taken us, kind of taken us back. <laughs> despite financial aid, despite you know, bias that students are going to encounter in their classrooms because of the way that they look or where they come from. That's good, and you shared something with me too, just the fact that we kind of forget all of those nuances of the fact that you know, black people or people of color in the United States really didn't have that for the last 50 or 60 years. 60 or 60 years that's when we've been able to get in schools because we had those HBCUs and things where we kind of, we thought we were going to college, which was really just for black elite in a lot of ways. Exactly. Right. That's good. That's good. Let, let me, I would love to hear you too, Liz, talk about you you're coming from Indiana, Indiana nowhere, and just really just, you know, into <laughs> CPS and you just dropped in and just, but I'd love to hear your experience of matters of race and how, what's that been like for you? Yeah, um, I could talk for a really long time about my experience, so I'm going to try and keep it brief. I have one story that really... Um, I feel like is the most impactful, but I want to piggyback a little bit off of what Nina said because she reminded me that when she was talking about the laws, um, I work in special education, so one of the special education laws is that all students receive a free and appropriate public education, and that's assuming that students who aren't in special education are already receiving it, but the reality is, is that in my mind, it's not an appropriate education always. So. I just wanted to <laughs> throw that out there. But um, so, yeah, like I said, I worked in three schools, and the school that I really felt like I experienced race and education the most was in the school that was primarily African American students. And this school was kind of unique in itself because it was right across the street from a subsidized housing complex and it was an, an affluent neighborhood. So mostly wealthy white people surrounded the school, but then primarily low-income African-Americans lived in this subsidized housing. Um, so all of these white families, their kids were, their home school would have been this school, but zero of their families went to the school. Mm. It was basically 100% of the population of the school came from that subsidized housing complex. Um, and I used to live relatively close, so I used to walk to work. And you literally felt the divide walking from one side of the, uh, the street to the other. So I would cross over from the side of the street where all the wealthy white people lived across the street to where the subsidized housing was, and you didn't see a white person after you crossed the street. And it was just... It was really amazing to me, and I guess that that kind of spoke to how naive I was. Mm. Um, but even to the point of 
walking into the school that way and having white coworkers say, don't walk out of the school on the side that the subsidized housing is. Mm. Like, you shouldn't do that. And it just, it baffled me because I was like, wait, we're, so it's okay that we want to educate the students in this school, but we don't really care about them enough to actually care about where they live mm. or care about their families or care about how they're being raised outside of the school. So that for me was just like very eye-opening, but also just heartbreaking and realizing even more like we really need Jesus in the education systems and he's really the only way that we can reconcile the, the education system. That's good, that's good, that's good. Thank you. Jared, man, you, you've, you don't necessarily work in the education field, but you're a product of CPS, you and Marsha Ray, and I just, I love to hear your experiences, man, particularly just kind of selective enrollment and what's that been like? You went someplace else, like many people in Chicago, travel out of the neighborhoods and then they come home to something different. What, what's that been like for you? being in this CPS system or coming out of it. Yeah, yeah, so um, like Derek was just touching on, uh, being a product of Chicago public schools. And um, like I kind of prefaced with earlier, um, I was fortunate enough that um, my parents were able to really just stretch to allow me, as well as my sister, to go to, so the school that we went to starting in first grade for me was not in our neighborhood. And so I lived in an all-black neighborhood. It was an interesting scenario. I lived in an all-black neighborhood, and the only white family in that neighborhood were our next-door neighbors, and they, like, owned land in Michigan or something. I didn't even know what that meant to own land. But, um, yeah, so I would go to school um, at an accelerated academic program and come back home as a child and play with all my friends, you know, that are on the same block as me. And I just remember a lot of times, you know, having conversations with them, talking to them, and they're like, you talk white. Mm -hmm. And at that time in my life, not really knowing what that meant as a kid, um, but what happens is as that grows and you hear that as a child, that starts to correlate white with educated and black with uneducated. Mm -hmm. And because of that and starting to realize that a lot of times I would try to um, talk black with my black friends and then talk white with my white, with my white friends. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, what I'm doing is just making myself sound educated and making myself sound less educated. And that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is just to be myself and be the person mm -hmm. who God made me to be. And so um, just a lot of things coming from, uh, I guess, kind of also starting with... Um, my parents knowing how to navigate through Chicago public schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, my mom even tells a story of how she like challenged CPS, like I will send my son to the north side of Chicago to get this education, even if he has to wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning, but you're gonna send a bus out here to go get him. And um, <laughs> yeah. Way yeah. to go, mom, like, yeah. I love that. And um, just with their support and doing that, and of course CPS was like, okay, we'll get them into the one that's by your house or closer <laughs> to your house. But um, really just, it was a process in being able to, once again, navigate through Chicago public schools wow. um, and then also challenging the race thing. So. Yeah, so it's just tough to even, you know, being a young black male 
getting into the system and getting into an actual great school um, that's going to educate you and set you on a good trajectory. I, I love to hear Marsha Ray. She has a lot of a wealth of knowledge on this topic, I think, and just um, what she's doing in terms of working at admissions. And uh, could you just share a little bit of the background and things that go into that and just and how we get to where we are and even the things he's talking about? Sure. So I work in higher ed. And before I can highlight where I see the intersection of race and education at the administration level, student level, and um, just institutional level and just personally, I have to first pivot to this understanding between descriptive and substantive representation and how that impacts voters' behaviors. And we see this bleed into other areas, media, workforce, et cetera. And so when we talk about substantive representation, it's the idea that I'm going to vote for someone who shares the same morals and values as I do. So you think like me, you got my vote. Whereas descriptive representation implies that I am voting for someone, I'm subscribing to them simply because of their race and how they looked or their gender. And when we talk about the intersection of race and education, I think we lean more on descriptive representation in the workplace or in education, right? So at the administrative level, uh, you may in fact be knowledgeable, you may in fact have something to contribute to a certain issue or policy, but because you're not of a certain color, uh, that you are somehow prohibited from the table, you're not invited to the table, you're not invited although you qualify to be. Um, at the student level, um, you might see some institutions, namely private Ivy League institutions, withhold admissions to students of color or other minority groups because they're trying to maintain the quote-unquote landscape of their institution, right? So they have this good old boy system, this uh, tendency to protect and safeguard the legacy of the students that they bring, although they're not academically qualified. But on the other side, you do see some institutions creating policies um, to actually create create points of access for students of color. Um, and, and while that's good, while that is technically for the people, for people of color, um, there's some margin of disingenuous intentions there because we are held accountable to board of trustees, we're held accountable to legislators, we're held accountable to the community around us. So some of it's PR, some of it is I'm going to attach certain students of color to my institutions or I'm going to uh, market our diversity because I want to maintain the optics. I want to associate myself with something that is good, although in all actuality, I'm not committed to serving those students while they're here. Mm. Here's an example. Yes, I just raised the racial profile of my students. I have more African-American, more Asian-American, more Latino, Latina students here on my campus, but what I am not doing is stewarding their education. So there's one population mm. of students, Asian-Americans in particular, we're very good about serving that group. We have a model that is established to bring them to this mentorship program and what we found is that those students are we're retaining those students they're graduating on time mm -hmm. the academic profile has increased they're more engaged they're contributing wow. to the campus culture more so than others so if we know that that model works for this population why aren't we funding and expanding that model across the board because we're not interested in retaining those students we're not genuinely concerned about their well-being we want to raise our numbers we want to be associated with something that is good because guess what Chicago and other surrounding areas are becoming more and more globalized so because of this we want to say or have this depiction of, hey, here's a brochure, here's an Asian student, a white student, a black student, a Hispanic student, so on and so forth, just to say we are good, just to say that we support, but we truly don't. At a personal level, I've seen this and in being invited to be a part of certain committees, and we talked about this whole idea about checking off 
you know, that box, right? I was brought onto a hiring committee because I'm a black woman and they wanted to assume that there was some fairness involved. And so we didn't want to have to answer to affirmative action and have to get our um, nominees, our final nominees rejected only to start over again. So you, blink, you bring a person of color to be a part of that conversation. But in all actuality, my input wasn't truly uh, accepted or, or valid in their, in their eyes. Um, and the last example I'll give is that as a recruiter, I would go to pockets of um, Illinois, uh, namely East St. Louis. And East St. Louis is a very large high school at that time. Uh, we cornered the market as an Illinois public school. We cornered the market in terms of yielding a lot of those applications. But if you know anything about East St. Louis, it's, very, uh, it's a poor area, right? So a lot of those students receive free or reduced lunch. They could not afford an application. But because my boss was so concerned about raising our application numbers, so she could report to the upper admin, she had me go out there to that school and get 300 applications. But let me tell you what I did not do. I did not compromise my integrity to go get applications from a large population of black students who I know are not admissible to my school. After two classroom settings, two home classes, I said, you know what? I'm going to talk to you guys about higher ed and how you can be competitive in this market, how you can be an admissible student. But for those of you who are admissible, come see me and you'll fill out an application. I was not interested in serving the, the interests of my institution. I was interested in serving the students that I was there to serve. And that's more important. Man, drop the mic, right? Good job. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yes, thank you so much. Um, speak to Nina or, or Liz or somebody. If you would just speak to just... She, she talked a lot about different things that are going on in the educational system. How, how do you see change? What, what should we change? And, and why is this a gospel issue? Why, why, why would Jesus care about our educational system? I think a lot of people are like, oh, it's something else that doesn't necessarily matter in terms of what Jesus talks about in the Bible. Like, what, why, what needs to change? And why, why would you say that this is an issue of the gospel? Um, I think when it comes to the education system, as it's been noted already, there's so many different aspects of the education system that does need some type of working. And the truth is, it's really a reflection of what's happening in society because students are coming into the schools with, you know, having to travel on a bus mm -hmm. an hour to two hours just to make it to the steps of the community college that I work at, you know. They're living so much life dealing with violence, dealing with issues of the economy, dealing with issues of the legal system, okay, that we didn't really get to dive too much into. But they're bringing all of that into the educational space. So there's a number of different ways that that needs to be changed, but we have to care because the truth of the matter is that God cares about the oppressed and any system that is going to further perpetuate that oppression Jesus is in that and it matters okay um, I feel very much so that the work that I do is justice work and sometimes when in Christian spaces when you say justice folks kind of roll their eyes like yeah, okay whatever but no really Justice, this is justice work, this is love work, this is light-bearing, light-giving, light-sharing work. And, um, and that's ultimately what God calls us to do, calls us to truly love his children and to see the light within them. Amen, amen. Yeah, I think um, working in CPS, I didn't meet a lot of Christians or a lot of people that really cared about Jesus and um, that's the only way we're going to see reconciliation in the schools is through Jesus. So that's, to me, it's like a no-brainer. Why aren't, why aren't churches involved? Why aren't more Christians involved? 
And not to mention also that young people are easier to reach and easier to share God's love with and easier to reach, you know, for, for Jesus. So why, it's like, to me, it's a no-brainer. Why aren't, why aren't we trying to reach, reach those kids? And, um, I mean, through all, through all phases of their education. Amen, amen. Well, thank you guys for sharing. Did you? Uh, well, I just have one I'm quick thing, go. Just go from, ahead, buddy. even just hearing some of the things that were shared. Um, one thing, as it relates to the gospel and education, um, just thinking about how when we look at the life of Jesus and how the odds were against him and some of the oppression that he faced just from um, a lot of the Sadducees and Pharisees, you know, and we hear that narrative in CPS. We hear that narrative with um, young black males. Um, just how the odds are against them, especially in education. But um, that didn't stop Jesus from still showing love and compassion and forgiveness even towards those who were oppressing him. Um, and I think that one time, sometimes that happens, and it's very easy, and I fall trapped to it too, but from those systems and things that are causing the oppression of allowing nothing but anger and hate to be pushed towards it, instead of responding the way Jesus did in love and still forgiving and still um, choosing to love those in that system. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it is. I love the, the word about oppression. I was listening to my brother, Pastor Charlie Dates, here in the city the other day, and he was talking about how the, um, when they build max prisons and they build these um, jails, they think about, um, they, don't, they say, we'll build all of this and it's going to be money that's going to come from tax dollars and different things. But you got to fund all the different people within the job. And they say the way we'll, we'll fund this is if we keep the beds, the, the cells full. You know, so the way they get the number of how many cells they're going to build is by looking at, is it third grade, third grade test scores? Third grade test scores and then what, and see the backward side of that, which we didn't really get into a lot, is that in Chicago and a lot of places, the school systems are built off of the property taxes of the neighborhood. So if your neighborhood is downtrodden, then the schools are going to be downtrodden. So neighborhoods, you know, we say Lincoln Park versus like a Roseland, the schools are going to be totally different. Um, so those schools, so if you're testing somebody in third grade, of course they're going to be the ones that end up in the prison. So it's so many system, systemic things that, that lead to that. Um, and I love your word. As Christians, we got to care about these things. We need to be able to know these things. We need to be knowledgeable about what's happening in our community so we can actually intentionally cross those lines as Jesus did um, and see this city and this world better because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he calls us to be as believers. Amen. Thank you guys for uh, sharing this morning. This is awesome. family, as we end the day, this is what I want to do. I want to take communion to this, this morning, and if you're new here at our church, um, the way we do communion is the elements are to my right or my left, and you can take the cup in your hand, and you take that cracker in your hand, which symbolizes this Jesus' body that was broken for us on the cross, and he bled for us, which washes our sin slate clean if we believe in him. When you come to the table this morning, all the things that you heard, I don't want you to go out of here uh, mad or anything. Hopefully, you're encouraged and challenged by this word to go and cross over the line, too, with somebody else, because here's the reality. Jesus Christ walked in, although he was Jewish, we, we, we say, oh, he's a Hebrew, he's an Israelite, all these different things. He, nobody was like him. Everybody was the enemy of Jesus. You know why? Because we were sinful and he was sinless. 
So he crossed the line with every individual he came in contact with. He had prostitutes in his camp. He had tax collectors in his camp. He had fishermen, some of the lowest in society in his camp, rolling with him. He had all these people where he crossed these different lines. So dividing walls were falling down because Jesus stepped over them. So I want to challenge you all as a people here at Renewal. And what we see here on Sunday, if you look around really quickly, this is an anomaly in churches. 11 o'clock is still the most divided hour of the week, but not here at Renewal. So I don't want this to just stay here. So the things we talk about here, this is hope, because we, we're not changing lives right now, okay? This, this changes lives when you guys take it back to your dinner tables and your workplaces and you have these conversations and you intentionally engage people that are different than you, amen?